Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Tom Howard, and this is the Formula E Podcast. Uh, welcome to this special edition of the Autosport Podcast, all about Formula E this week. And this broadcast is brought to you in association with Modis, Technology and Digital Engineering Consultants. The timing of this Formula E podcast is not just about jumping on the COP26 train where Envision team unveiled the world's first two-seater electric Formula E car and a Formula E car made by the Waze, but to tie up with a supplement in this week's edition of Autosport. So I'm just going to throw it to our Formula E scribe, Matt Hughes, to just explain a little bit about this supplement. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks to Modis. For now, it remains a one-off, but we've uh, put together a really, a really good package sort of focusing on, um, on, on Mercedes, which, you know, is nice because it ties in Modis are a sponsor of Mercedes, but also they just so happen to be... Um, the team that won the Drivers and, and Teams Championship last year. So um, we've got columns uh, written personally by Nick DeVries, our Drivers Champion, and uh, Ian DeVries, a Mercedes team boss. And then I've sort of treated it like a, a Marvel or DC sort of origin story. So um, my season rev- uh, review in the mag a few weeks ago, we, we did why Mercedes won, but um, I've sort of really gone back to the to the first steps of how, how the Formula E team was put together out of the ashes of the HWA DTM program, you know, when all the key signings came on board, you know, Gary Puffett, the 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 HWA driver turned sort of uh, Mercedes team advisor, goes into great depth about sort of a load of the troubles they had that um you know 
that that didn't ne- that you wouldn't have necessarily put them on on the path to sort of double championship success when they first rocked up and had all these teething issues. And then um, and then there's also a, a great bit um, written by my colleague JBL or Jake Boxall Leg, as podcast listeners will know, going into the sort of the tech of the current Formula E car and it's ahead of its last season in, in service. And we've got some bits with uh, Albie Lowe, who's uh, the Californian who's uh, sort of race engineering, uh, who's, who's, who's Nick DeVries' race engineering sort of calmly guided the guy to guide to the title. So we've got some great insights in there and um, it's all part of your uh, weekly autosport magazine for, for no additional cost. So, so why not treat yourself? Sounds excellent, Matt. And we're we're lucky to have the well, lucky to have yourself, but also the voice of Formula E, Jack Nichols, today to have a review of the season that we've just had. So, uh, welcome, Jack. Thank you. Looking forward to it. It was a entertaining season, as it always is with with Formula E. Would you give it a grade, Jack? If this was like an end of term report, how did you've 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 been there for pretty much every race now, apart from apart from one or two? So, could you give it a, a, a grade? How this fits compared to the six other seasons that came before it um my grade would be sort of a b i think because well actually what would you grade your own work what would you grade your commentary i had ups and downs and i thought monaco formula e was was the best formula e race of all time and i and i was very satisfied with my work on that as well there are some really fascinating uh, bits of uh, commentary tip bits as well. You must have had a good source in the paddock feeding feeding you those. Jack. What do you mean? Oh, because it's you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he's always he's always livid when I say something that he's said, and I don't say said Matt Q from Autosport, and it, and then I'll say something from some other different uh, source, and then I'll name them, and then he he goes mad. So I will try to mention you more in the future. It's just because my uh, mum and grandma are watching. Slight, slight anecdote about that. I got my grandma to watch the, the London E-Pre, being as it returned to the UK. And I asked her what she thought. And she said, well, it's so hard to tell which one you are once you've all put your helmets on. So, no, grandma, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm not a racing driver. <laughs> well, I guess then you, you've sort of given it a grade there. But uh, it's been an interesting season. Let's sort of start with, I guess, the fact that they managed to get 15 events in was quite a miracle considering the COVID situation. Just talk us through what you thought about the the season as a whole and the calendar. Yeah, I think that that's where my sort of B comes from because they got a lot of races in. COVID was obviously in in sort of full force at the start of the of the season, especially. I mean, it, not that COVID's gone away, but you know, Rome was looking really dodgy for a while, and that was only the second event of the season, and then it was a doubleheader in Valencia and then suddenly you're in Puebla instead of Mexico City and all of these were doubleheaders. So they did a great job to get a calendar going. It wasn't really a very Formula E calendar particularly, you know. I think that you you had Rome in there and uh, Monaco, New York, London. For me, those were the only sort of three uh, or four, I should say, events that that are proper Formula E events. And so I think that's why it was... um, uh, you know, not not the greatest calendar in the world, but it was never going to be able to be. And like you say, just to get it done was was hugely successful. And the championship, I mean, mainly due to the to the qualifying format, I sort of struggled with the with the with the championship battle as the season went on because it's a very difficult story to to tell. Um, and then in the end, Nick De Vries does yeah, deserving champion, no doubt about that. I think my my biggest sympathies of the season probably go to to Stoffel van Dorn because I thought he was remarkable this year and probably my driver of the year. And yet he's 
where did he where did he even finish outside the top ten? No, ninth, ninth, ninth in the championship. So. Yeah, a lot of season of ups and downs for everybody. But you mentioned that there, the championship race is, is, is unbelievable when you look at it. Because if you look at the points, I think it's 99 points down to 80 to cover the top 10. And I think there was, what, 11 different winners from 15 races. So it was just one of those battles that you just, nobody really took the, the you know, took the scruff of the neck of it, did they? Well, you can't. Because of the because of the qualifying system. I think that's the that was the frustration of it. So we as an example, Valencia race... Uh, two it would have been. It was you... De Vries, I think, led the championship. And then before the race, you're like, right, De Vries is leading the championship. France is in there. Da Costa maybe was in there. Ever, um, Evans is in there. These are the big people in the championship. And then the race happens. You spend the whole race watching Jake Dennis, Alex Lynn and Norman Nato. Okay, that was the beginning of the... Of the... Of the... Of the... 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 Denissance. But it didn't kind of <laughs> matter, you know, in terms of the story of the championship at that point. So that, and you had that kind of every week, and that was quite difficult to to uh, to kind of tell the story of because Group One qualifying put the championship leaders so far back. It's not like they were seventh or eighth. We need to keep an eye out for them. They're eighteenth, nineteenth, and twenty fourth, and you're never going to see them. And they're never going to get anything out of it anyway. Like, maybe they'll come through and get one point. For that final race in Berlin, Jack, did you have someone in the uh, amongst the TV crew like just furiously smashing at a calculator to try and work out all the different permutations? Or do you think... I think there was 13 people going into the last, last double header could have won it. So at that point, you just think, oh, do you know what? It's not worth the effort. Yeah, very little in life is worth the effort. But I think that... Um, <laughs> Everyone was everyone was getting quite worried about this thirteen drivers in the championship thing, and it was like let's not yeah. let's not let's not work worry because most of those will be realistically eliminated after the first race because you're halving the amount of points available, so you're halving the the sort of gaps. So that they'll all go, and then it'll become pretty obvious. And it did become pretty obvious that on Sunday it was it was Evans, De Vries, or Dennis or Mortara and suddenly that became a lot simpler really and it, even more simple when they all got wiped out on the opening right. lap yeah I guess talk us through that that finale then because obviously quite a dramatic ending to the championship um, did the right man win the thing is you could make a case for so many of the drivers being being deserving champions because of the up and down nature of the of the season so yeah De Vries was great in Diria um he won that first race in Valencia, which was the the energy race drama. But those were his only two races, and the the Diria race, the win came because he was in. Um, I think he was in group of the front runners. He was in group three, maybe or or two or something like that. He certainly wasn't in group one, like like all of your other front runners. So he got off the mark there, and then L- London was the weekend that sort of sealed him the the championship because Mercedes went a bit missing in Monaco, Puebla and and New York and then London De Vries got got back on it and yeah that eighth place he didn't but this is the nuts part he could have scored no points in Berlin the way it panned out and still been the champion because he picked up what four points for his eighth place finish and he finished seven points clear of Mortara so he didn't even need to to finish the race in order to win the championship. He could have had a no score in the final double header. 
and won the title. And so, even though he was, even though he was two points ahead or whatever going into the double header, it's just it's just nuts the the maths around it. So the right guy won. I think Evans did a great job this season. I think Dennis did a great job, and I think Van Dorn did as well. I think any any of those, and maybe maybe a France, maybe a France, but he but he didn't win a race. So yeah, uh, for me it would have been De Vries, Evans, Dennis would have been sort of the deserving champions. Well, that's the that's the contractual mention of uh, Robin Fryens I've been yeah, done with. Yeah. But um, you, say, you say about De Vries sort of. Um, you know, barely having to score. He gave it a really good go in that final race. In this bizarre moment where him and Van Dorn were pincered with a Porsche in the middle, considering he had seen his uh, two title or uh, two, three major title rivals wiped out within the space of a couple of laps, it was it was quite a, a clumsy rest of the race, I think, from from De Vries. Um, what I will say though is I'm going to give him a bit more credit for how he turned up in in Saudi. Um, I think no one else in Formula E had ever. You know, done a complete grand slam, which is topping both practice sessions, group qualifying, landing pole, leading every race, uh, leading every lap from pole, fastest lap win. That that was a really consummate performance. And then Valencia is sort of somewhere in the middle where they can hold their hands up and go, well, we got it right when everyone got it wrong. But I don't think a driver who is being told all through the race, you're under consuming, you know, let's monitor this, you're under consuming. I don't think that can be held up by the FIA, by Formula E, by Mercedes themselves as a paragon of good of good strategy and execution when, you know, we've got all the other teams that are washed with XF1, IMSA, World Endurance talent, and they're being told, you know, oh guys, you've got it wrong, but we'll we'll stick out a bit of a bit of a dodgy statement saying, you know, uh this this put road car technology on the map or whatever the the justification was. I thought that that was a put bit of a down day the analogy I, I worked into one of my reports is that after you had six races in Berlin to conclude last season that felt like the the six day bender the stag do or whatever and then the first half of this season did feel a little bit like a hangover to me there were some some silly decisions a bit of sort of bleary-eyed judgment but I thought I thought by the end of it sort of you know with with new races in London okay Puebla was a stand-in venue but what a cool place banked corners in you know underneath a, a volcano that was uh, that that just looked amazing I thought on, on the whole it was a, a decent season that sort of it it took its time to gather momentum though I reckon I think you mentioned there obviously Valencia uh, Matt and I, I'd have to say you covered that controversy brilliantly for for autosport mostful.com um, can you just Talk us through some of that because that's probably one of the most craziest things we've seen in motorsport for some time. Really fascinating to to uh, report on, really, because you had this scenario where, because of the pandemic, you know, we we couldn't go to a, a city centre track because of what McLaren Zach Brown would call the optics. Is you know you can't have like a, a moving fraternity of people come in and, and decimate your city by by spreading cases. Or uh, so so we raced in uh, the preseason testing track at. at uh, in Valencia but because you've got basically long straights and fast open corners there's not the the massive braking zones to, to harvest energy so it's always quite sort of energy critical uh, anyway but then you had a load of safety cars because we had a good bit of rain you know Andre Lotter in the first of many incidents this season was punting people off and and bringing out uh, uh, the, 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 the safety car and uh, the regulations mean that for every minute you spend in neutralised conditions, you can take away some of the driver's energy because, uh, you know, the teams want to make sure that it's about the software um, 
you know, that's front and centre in Formula E's, they don't want a safety car to create a, a sprint race to the end because that undermines all the, the nuances of their work where they're eking out, you know, point xxx of a percent better efficiency than their rival. So, so that's the context. But basically, I think there was a total of 19 um, kilowatt hour uh, taken away from their, their total of uh, 52. And so um, Antonio Felix da Costa, who had who'd been leading the entire race, sort of, Cross the line when the when the race timer was sort of getting really close to elapsing, but just cross the line in time to set up uh, a one lap sprint to the finish, and uh, it was too much for the amount of energy they had remaining. And I just want to clarify that there's the energy they're allowed to use, but the cars actually had something like a forty percent of their overall battery left, which is another another quirk. But um, yeah, so, so I think of the twenty four cars, only nine finished at racing speed, and then and then the FIA told their reigning champion Antonio Felix da Costa that he maybe should have slowed the pace and, and not set up that which was which was poorly executed but it's a really good you know event to cover because you had you know teams who had won and lost um drivers who had won and lost all trying to control their emotions you know let's be honest really talented people not having the faintest idea of what just happened really and that it was really sort of brilliant to see that dynamic and then and then you know feeling like a fly on the wall where um Frederick Bertrand, the FIA's former sporting director, he's in discussions here, discussions here. And you think, oh, as a journalist, if I, if I knew what was going on, you know, it'd be it'd be brilliant. It was it was a really interesting day, but perhaps perhaps not the best one in Formula E's history. But then again, the flip side to round off my point is that Valencia Race Two had the best viewing figures of the whole season. So you know, uh, there's no such thing as. Uh, uh, bad news. No, what's that? What's the saying? There's only one thing worse than uh, being talked about. There we go. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, Jack, I guess from a TV point of view, covering that Valencia race, how difficult is that from uh, from your side? Well, especially when you work for the championship, you are the you are like the spokesperson of the championship at that at like that point. So when when De Costa came across the line and they did the energy reduction, I just sort of had this realization, and I'm just like, oh, you're joking, really? Then none of them, I was like, none of them are going to finish. So then you have to sort of, I don't know, d- sort of deal with that messaging, sort of, you know, you know, I don't get to sort of wait around and then write a press release, you know, it's like you got to say stuff now. It was a tough one, and also it was tough because it wasn't quite clear what what had happened, why there'd been. Um, sort of why it had gone so badly wrong initially. I look back and I, I don't, you couldn't tell, yeah, you just couldn't tell what was going on. I think that was the biggest part and that was the biggest difficulty in in communicating it because you could see what was happening in that they didn't have enough energy, but why they hadn't, I, you know, there's no, I had no idea of why they hadn't. And then it became obvious sort of that Da Costa maybe should have, or, or well, definitely should have slowed down and, done done the made it one lap shorter and that the Tachita engineers should have known slash seen that but as soon as he doesn't go every other team has to go as well because every other team and no no, no one else can just choose to go slower so they only do one lap you know because it wants to cost has gone you've all got to go and I did come down in the end after a lot of arguing and debate and discussion Mercedes did get it right. Now, were they fortunate that De Vries had a bit more energy yet? But they knew they knew what was going to happen halfway around, you know, at the safety car in 
point, right? Halfway around the, the lap, they sort of updated their targets because different teams update their targets at different points. And Mercedes knew that they would need to take it steady on the last lap because De Vries didn't finish sort of at full speed. You know, he did a pretty slow final lap and they were all about the same energy. So maybe Van Dorn, with Van Dorn, they were sort of fortunate because he had a lot of energy that he'd been conserving because he started from the back. But De Vries had pretty much the same as everybody else. So everybody else could have made it if they'd have realized sooner. But so many teams just just carried on and just went flat out. So dri- drivers was, Some drivers were saying, well, I thought, well, obviously this won't happen. They'll reset the energy. So I'll just ignore the beeps. Uh, some didn't know there was an issue at all until the cars stopped on track. And then they were like, oh, I'm out of energy, am I? So there was a real mix of how the teams dealt with it. And most of them did get it wrong. Now, that's not to say that there was no issue on the sporting side. And is it good to put the uh, the teams in this situation where this is a possibility. If energy management is going to be the jeopardy, the logical outcome of that is sometimes they might run out of energy, right? Like that. So it can't then be a surprise when they if they run out of energy when you've set up the jeopardy. Oh, can they get to the end on their energy? And then if the answer is no, but most of the time it's yes. So I don't know. That was a bit that was a bit rambly, but it's um. It was a weird situation that sh- that probably shouldn't have happened from a sporting point of view, but also Mercedes did did manage it absolutely, you know, sort of spot on. As I said, I, I disagree with that. I I think Mercedes were lucky, but no, what but I will so say I, is I, that, um, I think I, they were. Fo- I think they were fortunate in some ways, but De Vries had like one percent more than everybody else, right? When it came down, like Van Dorn had than everybody else. But that's, right, that's when it came one, down. Like Van Dorn had of three or four percent more. Defries, how do you have a tiny bit more? Okay or not? But what I will right? say is that immediately after the race, I, I I agreed with you. We spoke about it. We WhatsApp. You know, we have each other's numbers. Okay, we WhatsApp. Me and TV's Jack Nichols. That's fine. But we uh, we WhatsApp, and I agreed. But it's only when I spoke to more people. I'm not suggesting you haven't spoken to more people. That's when when I sort of built up a clearer picture. But you're saying you found it difficult to commentate on. Is this where? Is this where perhaps former East TV coverage should have like a BT Sports Peter Walton where you can throw back to FEHQ in Hammersmith to get sort of ramblings about the letter of the law and then throw back to Jack Nichols? Have you been putting that case forward? The commentators should know the rules, is my belief. Why why a commentator should, like discussing a handball in football should need to throw to a referee? It's like, well, just learn the rules. I'm not saying that football commentators or on BT Sport don't know the rules. Obviously, they do. But I find that I find that whole concept a bit weird. Now, because no, well, none of the teams knew what was going on, Matt. So who are we going to ask? Who who could who could we ask? That's the that's the point. If none of the teams know what was going on, then how are we going to know? Is this all cleared up now? We will never see the the likes of this again. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, we were we were gonna let's we we can touch on both points actually. We talked about qualifying and uh, and and this energy debacle as as we called it in in the magazine. Uh, but we we were gonna sort of throw gently towards twenty twenty two later in the podcast. But we're saying that we've got a new qualifying format now, which is a bit like sort of a Super League Formula knockouts, where you have two batches of drivers, sort of a Q one and a Q two, effectively. Uh, and then the top times will be taken from those, and then these drivers will be pitched together in head to head duels to to decide poll that that could be quite exciting and also the knock-on effect is that you know we've got different timetables now practice will be shorter and things like that to accommodate the 
accommodate the schedule, that'd be good. And also to keep up the football analogy and bring in Peter Walton, instead of um, there being reductions of energy behind a safety car, we're now going to have added time. Uh, uh, so for so for every every sort of safety car that um, there'll be for I think it is for a minute of safety car there'll be 45 seconds added on to the 45 minute plus one lap timer which so it's it's the same but different basically and I think it'll be easier to to legislate and there's um, you know I think FIA race director Scott Elkins on the whole does a brilliant job but but that sort of that thing happened. What happened in Valencia came under his discretion. I think that's probably a, a separate argument of whether he's got enough support around him to manage the entire race and and do those calculations alongside. But I think it sort of um, alleviates a, the pressure point there by having this added time concept. And it also adds. Tell- <laughs> it also adds more racing. Is the, is the other theory that you get the time in the same way with British touring cars, where if you lose a couple of laps behind the safety car, you still get those couple of laps. Yeah, and you just fob off Formula 4 because that's not part yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. Uh, the main show. <laughs> Please tell me there's going to be an injury time board like in football that's held up and shown around. Don't know yet, honestly. We're Don't know. We, we haven't, it's, not, uh, it's not fully decided yet how exactly it's going to be uh, covered. So yeah, maybe we'll get... Who could we get to hold the board up? Maybe like Alejandro if he, or Jamie Regal hold the board up at, at the end of each race. Tom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gatecrash your, your hosting and say this podcast has a bit, been a bit too convivial for me. So uh, I'd say if we should argue about some top 10 drivers and why, why Jack Nichols definitely has his in the wrong order. One point I just wanted to bring about, as we have covered the lowlights quite quite uh, heavily there, obviously one of the highlights was Monaco as Jack pointed out I just wanted to get both of your opinions on just how good a race that was because from television it looked amazing it was brilliant I'm going to keep it really brief though what was what was the overtake of the race of the season of of Formula history was it was it De Costa's last lap locking up lunge on Mitch Evans for the win or was it Mitch Evans around the outside at Beau Rivage I mean both of those were, were brilliant overtakes but which one I think Evans at Beau Rivage just really quickly, the reason the race was good is because there was no track evolution in qualifying. So everyone from Group 1 was at the front and you had Evans and Acosta and Freint, second mention, and uh, all of those you know front runners fighting at the front. And that's what you want to see in, in motorsport. And so hopefully we'll see more of that this year. Well, before we get into today's top 10 drivers, a big thanks to today's podcast sponsor, the holidays have arrived early and it's more jingle balls than jingle bells over at Manscaped, the leading men's hygiene brand. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the signature Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer has proprietary advanced skin-safe technology to reduce the cuts on your Christmas nuts. It's also waterproof, so you can use it in the shower. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 also includes the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver, an anti-chafing deodorant, moisturizer and toner. So whether you're treating yourself or someone else, use our code to get a huge discount. Tis the season to load up on Manscaped products, so get yourself, your dad, your brother and friends the best gifts of all, the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Every guy out there needs to add Manscaped to their wish list this season. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code AUTOSPORT at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code AUTOSPORT. Okay, back to the podcast and into the top 10. Uh, so Matt, let's kick off with you with your number 10, which I believe is Oliver Rowland. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. I think this is, again, one where where Jack and I, if I can divulge this, we had a bit of a WhatsApp 
tete-a-tete. No, that tete-a-tete makes it sound like it was confrontational. It wasn't. But we argue whether whether Roland should be should be in it because sort of. Um, I think the way I approach top ten drivers is you you have a top five which you know are set in stone. Then then probably six to nine are just drivers you think should be in a top ten, but the order doesn't really matter. But tenth place is quite important. It's casting out all the all the other because then when you're in the paddock next time and, and a driver comes up furious at one in the top 10, you go, mate, you're in 11th, that's fine. But 10th, 10th is actually, you have to stop sitting on the fence and decide. I put I put Oliver Rowland um, on, on the basis that the Nissan clearly wasn't a particularly quick car this season. I think at the end of at the end of Berlin last year, we thought Nissan are back. They're really gonna go for it. Title favourites possibly, and the car was the car was largely nowhere. And I think worryingly probably got worse as as the season went on. Um, um, and okay, Buemi, his teammate, had a champion, had an absolute stinker of a season by his own very very high um, standards, and there are possible reasons for that about a cracked tub and and so on, but. You know, we've got Roland in a rubbish car, outperforming a rubbish car. That's always, you know, one surefire bet to bump your way up up the order. Um, absolutely dominating a really established teammate. Again, tick number two criteria to, to sort of work your way to the top of the tree. And three, okay, as, as we've already talked about, there's 20 drivers that can put this case together. There is probably a, a lost title in there between being punted out of the the the, the lead um i think there's a clash clash with sorry there's a clash with lotterer he gets the penalty in in rome while leading and then i think it's his mistake but he takes him and himself out of and van dorn out of first and second in london so there's you know obviously there's ifs and buts and everything has to go the right way but there's probably a credible lost title charge and i just thought that was you know more worthy of of the sort of consistency but not headline grabbing performance of let's say you know Nick Cassidy of of let's say Pascal Verline so that's that's why I gave Roland 10th place and if we spend that long explaining every driver we'll be we'll be here for a for a long old while be a long podcast I totally agree with 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 what you're saying about Roland and um I think he was he was really kind of low-key impressive you know the first race in Diria he was sixth and seventh and he, but he came from Group One to finish sixth in the in the first race. Was quickest of the Group One qualifiers. Managed to get up and then ended up finishing in sixth, which put him in Group One for the next day as well. And he ended up seventh, the the highest finisher of all the Group One people, I think, on on the second race as well. Then moved to Rome, almost had pole, but put it in the wall. Then he had that penalty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you're absolutely right. I think he was usually quickest in in whatever qualifying group he was in, which is quite a good. Uh, indicator of of pace but yeah i too really surprised by by the 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 sort of inconsistency of the nissan at number nine we got sam bird who actually scored two race wins as many as the champion but he's only in number nine so tell us why yeah, it's, it's a couple of months since I wrote those now. Am I questioning my own ranking? I'm going to say no. I'm going to stick to my guns. He he was excellent when he won the second race in in saudi arabia and um but I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil devil's advocate. I think against myself really. So his other great performance was New York, but that was probably teed up by a practice crash he had the own day. So you know, can, uh, the 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 previous day potentially. So you know where, where that where that places him, and that took him to the top of the championship. But would he have gone to the top of the championship if it wasn't for him crashing? So I'm gonna say that you know his performance 
there's a couple of great highs, but also in, in New York where he rams it into the barrier in practice. That was that was a big mistake. Okay, one of them was uh, a, a rare mistake, but still a big mistake. But I think the main thing is uh, in judging him in the same car against his against his teammate. Yes, Bird was you know in in two sort of meaningless crashes on the first lap at in London that eliminated from him from the race. They weren't at least spectacular or big or noteworthy. They were just clunky and, and that was enough to kill off the the drive shafts but I think the main thing he, he loses is that Mitch Evans who okay is settled in the team but there was an expectation that, that Bird would probably maybe put him in his place a little bit after after Evans has had some pretty you know um bang average rather than exceptional teammates but I, I yeah I thought I thought Mitch Evans had the better of Bird too often for Bird to climb up any higher for me yeah you're, pro- you're probably about right I think Evans was one of the best drivers of the of the season I think. He's he's going to he's in my top 3 I reckon or certainly 4. And yeah, Sam didn't it was it was that run of DNFs two in London and then one in Berlin and yeah. and there were real opportunities because I think it was it must have I think it was Berlin there were quite a few opportunities. I think Puebla was one of them as well, wasn't it, where he would be in group 2 or 3 and couldn't convert from there and I think that was that was the thing that 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 made him struggle was that in his group two or three days I'm sure there was one in Puebla and there was that that first race in Berlin where if you can't convert when you're in group two or three then that's where your 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 championship falls apart really so I I would agree with that and then at number eight we have Lucas Degrassi yeah, I, I put him in my top 10. I saw a couple of other Formula E driver rankings. He wasn't in it. Um, but yeah, back back race winning. You know, uh, the, the thing I wrote about his, his driver ranking last season was that, you know, oh, it's Degrassi just being consistently brilliant, but um, but not, not getting the top score results here. He did. He probably could have got another one in Rome. But then again, his, his victory in Puebla was fortunate because Pascal Berlin was eliminated. So in a just world, all's, all's fair and equal in war or whatever, whatever the saying is, that's probably work balances out about right. Still the same Degrassi, needless crashes, a bit bit too clumsy. Um, but Jesus, I would have loved it if they'd have nailed their sort of strategy quirk in London and, and pit behind a safety car and come out and win. I think I think that would have been brilliant. Um, not not because it would have, you know, it was out to embarrass anyone, but I just thought it was really sort of shrewd reading of the rules. I'd love that to work. That was probably, you know, that was obviously more Audi's cool than Lucas Degrassi's, but I thought on balance probably just sneaks inside inside the top ten. And um and by and large had the measure of Rust. Maybe he didn't. Maybe Rust campa- uh, Rust campaign just petered out in the second half. But yeah, I thought inside the top ten. I'm struggling with I'm struggling with Degrassi in that high up, especially ahead of Bird. I think is a I think is a big call. His first half of the season was not a huge amount going on. Audi obviously found a bit of pace, like you say that win in Puebla. Well, they they always felt Audi that if they were qualifying in the, I think they just wanted to qualify in the top ten and then they'd have a good race. But they really struggled on one lap qualifying because I think Rast when Rast finished second in Puebla, I think he qualified. 10th on the grid and the team were like that's why we need to qualify inside the top 10 because then we can make progress so I think it was the one lap pace of the Audi that that struggled and Degrassi not the historically the the greatest of qualifiers necessarily but he did do a good job I think for me he's still probably below Bird and maybe below Roland for me but 
I uh, he's he's had it. He's had a good year. I I take those on board. Not damn, there's meant to be more cut and thrust. No, I wholly disagree <laughs> with everything you've just said, Jack Nichols. <laughs> uh, and, that, and that brings us on to number seven, which is Stoffel Vandal, which yeah, could be an interesting uh, debate between you two. How how is it a fast right? Okay, so let's look. Okay, he wasn't in a championship fight. Why? Okay, he had the lion's share of Mercedes operational glitches, uh, which Nick De Vries had had last season. So that explains some of the points difference. Um, what did he have? Right. His okay. No, I'm telling. Right. I'm, I'm taking you through it now. Okay. Eighth in the first race in Diria, fine. Second race in Diria, when he's yeah. not in Group 1, he's in Group 2, I think. Not allowed to qualify for Race 2 in Diria because yeah. of Mortara's crash. Then go to the next race in Rome, where he uh, takes pole position, gets barged into the wall by Lotterer, drops Lotterer. down to 14th place, 15th place. Suddenly, before you know it, he's back up with De Vries again, fighting for 6th. And then there's that moment and he has to take evasive action of Degrassi and he's in the wall and doesn't doesn't get a finish after should have winning the race and then should have being sixth and then suddenly he's out through no fault of his own so then the next day he just wins it anyway Valencia he comes up to third um but he should have been on pole in that one but so that one doesn't really matter too much because um yeah he should have been on pole but that tire irregularity so they send him to the back of the grid which was the a really harsh penalty. And then, admittedly, Monaco, Puebla, New York. They lost their way, um, Mercedes, totally. Back on form in London. He's absolutely cleaned out of a race he was about to win in London. And uh, then I can't remember what happened in the first Berlin, but every single race, I thought Stoffel van Dorn was excellent. Every single race, bar Monaco, Puebla, New York, where Mercedes had no pace, he was absolutely excellent. And so that's why he's my. I don't know, maybe he's my number one of the season, genuinely. And I don't know why I'm so convinced by this. It's a compelling case because none of it was his fault. In. I think that's the thing. None of it was. None of it was. Oh, he ended up getting hit by. It was all just absolute nonsense luck, and everyone has nonsense I luck th- throughout I- the season. I think if you're going to argue a case of a driver being high up the rankings. Um, even though they had a poor season, things out there, not their fault. That's Antonio Felix da Costa, and we'll, we'll come on to that. I've got a few few, few things to throw at you for his case. I felt Van Dorn... You have, you've got a da Costa above Van Dorn. Oh, my God, wow. yeah. Massively. I, I thought I'd put da Costa as number one. Really, I did. But then I thought, I th- I th- I thought I'd be, you know, you can't... Yeah, I thought that was. I thought that might have looked deliberately contrarian. But with Van Dorn, I don't think you had the performances when... The car was off the boil, and I understand that Formula E is incredibly competitive, and and you know there's only a second between the the best car on a grid and the worst car. But do you not think when Van Dorn out you know Van Dorn out outscored De Vries in Monaco, Puebla, and New York. Van Dorn out qualified De Vries. Oh, look at me! I've done my research for the podcast and have stats to argue. No, I don't. I haven't done done any research. I'm looking now at Wikipedia, and I can see. That in Monaco, Puebla, and New York, where the Mercedes were struggling, etc., etc., Van Dorn outscored De Vries. So yes, he can forgive me for forgive me for trying to be polite and make eye contact over webcam. I'm sorry, I didn't realise you were trawling through uh, through Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> I also I I take umbrage with anyone who argues that his his third place in in Valencia was was um, was. M- meritocratic it wasn't like it's same who who else did really nah, well it was, was it yeah, but he's um, got the third he's got the third place in valencia but 
in any real world, he would have started on pole position because he wouldn't have had that nonsense penalty. So that balances itself yeah. out. Well, no, does yes. it? Because Well, that was the fireworks we were all expecting. And I, uh, I loved it. That was great. Um, so <laughs> we'll swiftly move on to number six. Well, no, hang on, Tom. Robin Who's Fiennes. right? Who's right, Tom? What, oh, do you want me to judge? Okay. Uh, um, I, think, yeah. I think... Yeah, go on, Tom. Um, look at Wikipedia and tell us what's right. <laughs> I think, I think, you've, I, think the, I'm, I don't disagree. I, I disagree with quite a lot of the order. So anyway, but <laughs> I think Van Dorn should be higher. Yeah. I think he should be higher than seven. I don't. I'm not saying he should be maybe in the top five, but I'm saying he should be higher than seven. So you're saying sixth? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a difficult one. I mean, I agree. Your case is very compelling, Jack. Uh, but it's the, I don't it's think the kind he's of subtle, one it's the kind sure. of subtleties of of these things that you know you you have to look for, and you know some journalists just can't see them. Jack Nichols, uh, Jack Nichols, and subtlety the two words <laughs> I most close to associate with one another. <laughs> I think I think if if I'm being honest, you, you could scrape into the five, but I it would be fifth for me. Okay. If okay. if I'm being brutally honest, I think he I think he had a good campaign. I just disagree with with what you're underlining your argument with that he had lots of cases where he excelled. I don't think compared to the guy on the other side of the garage, he did. I think I think again he still has this trait that's a bit of a hangover from F1, where unless you know when the when the cards aren't in his favour, he's just happy to to deliver a 7 out of 10 performance rather than rather than drag out a 10 out of 10 performance that takes your ninth place to a fifth place and that's the sort of thing we look for in our top 10 drivers but when it, where are you seeing where are you seeing De Vries do that I'm not meaning to hate on De Vries here but like because I think he's great I think he's great obviously but I don't know what you're talk- Van Dorn had three pole positions it would have been four if uh, if he didn't have that sort of tyre disqualification four pole positions and you think he's done nothing impressive the most pole positions of anyone, I, and you think he's not that good at going fast. But you're using pole position. You're using pole positions with the qualifying format we've just had as a barometer of a good season. Nah, touche, touche. Excuse the whole no, thing. No, you know, I, 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 I'll bail out so, of that. Hey, one. That is a good point, Matt. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes. <laughs> that is good. I'll give you. A, I'll give you a point for that. Um, right. Okay. Let's let's try and <laughs> let's try and move on, shall we? Uh, P, we got P six. We got Robin Frines. Now talk us through that. Easy for me. I, I would, in many ways, I'd have loved him to have been champion because he wouldn't have had any race wins, and it cuts through the the massive peaks and trough all season of some drivers being first one race and and eighteenth the next. I thought I, you know, theoretically or romantically, I'd have, I'd have loved it if Robin Fryns had been champion because he he was just consistent all all the way. But if we're going to talk about romance and Robin Fryns, I'll let I'll let Jack Nichols argue his case. Oh, very funny, very funny. Uh, yeah, I, I, look, Robin had a Robin had a good year. I think that um, they were. I, I don't know what pace the Envision had, to be honest with you, and the Audi powertrain. I think I, I I'm unclear as to whether Robin sort of totally outperformed it, or actually did they underperform the team? I can't quite make it out, but I think. I think he was in the first group of qualifying for pretty much the whole season. I don't actually have those stats to hand. I have them somewhere, but pretty much the whole season he was in the first group of qualifying. And so every weekend was a was a battle and he would have to haul himself uh, out of it. So I think to score regularly was good. It was almost like he needed to drop out for, you know, the last race and then he could have gone on to, to win it. But they always struggle in 
Berlin in Vision Virgin. So I think having the season finale there was was always going to be a bit of a a bit of a struggle for them, unfortunately. And I think and I think they were sort of aware of that uh, going in. Freitz, yeah, he was the only driver that was in Group One for the whole of the season, bar Diria. So apart from Diria, the first round, he was in Group One every single race after that. Um, the only one who got close to that was Evans, but he dropped out uh, after the second London race um, when he hit the wall and, and crashed out, and that dropped him out of contention. Um, no one else even comes close to the amount of Group 1s that, that Robin Freitz was in. So I think on that basis, yeah, that 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 is a fine position for, for Freitz, maybe deserves a, a little more. So now we move into the all-important top five, and Matt has uh, Eduardo Mortara as his number five. Yeah, I think in in the four corner, um, Puebla was probably it, well uh, statistically it was the strongest weekend by every by anyone. You know the double header, the double headers, and and the group qualifying format basically means if you do well on the first day, you can't do well on the second day. Um, he he got uh, second and a first place, so so. Uh, uh, he got third and a first place. So I think, you know, uh, point score-wise, strongest weekend. Um, if I was being harsh, though, I'd say that his achievements are not undermined, but that you have to take something away from the fact that he finished runner-up in what was clearly the best car. And OK, you can use that to argue Van Dorn down further, uh, Norman Nato, Sachs, Norman Nato down further. But I, I think, yeah, Mortara had a great, great season, but a really the best car emphatically the best car to use and wasn't wasn't champion so that has to in principle hurt his score even if particularly for the first let's say six races whenever mercedes this titan motorsport was doing one thing venturi seemed to be doing the other in terms of strategy and uh that i, I get the argument for like diverging you get more data or or you know you, you find out more things but i think when when the works team is doing one thing you're being contrarian and doing the opposite I think that hurt Venture and, and hurt Motara as a result obviously extremely unlucky in, in Berlin when he shunts unsighted into Evans but I think fundamentally it has to hurt him that he had the best car that his effective teammate turned into a, a title winning campaign Motara didn't I think you're being very very harsh to the Venturi team here because obviously they have the same you know powertrain as Mercedes absolutely but they've got a fraction of the of the budget so i think that but they, they have the same they have the same software as well so what do you do in formula you turn up twiddle with the dampers until they're they're set up and then and then fire them on the way like the the whole point of the the model is that it's the customer model is that you're meant to mass that that golf and resource and and also it, it doesn't benefit mercedes in any way when they get gathering all this data to have their customer team, their their partner team, struggling. So I don't buy that there is, is a massive golf. I think they had it like pretty pretty equals peoples to to quote um, Mark Corrigan. Who people oh, show no, Mark right. Corrigan? Yeah, I was thinking he was some Venturi engineer An that you've been speaking man. to, but ev- evidently not from your answers. I <laughs> think when I lied and said that, I just I think Mortara um, Mortara had a weird season. Very impressive in in you know he was second in that opening race in Diria. What could he have done on the second day? Brilliant yeah, brilliant overtake. But then he only really had results in Puebla and a second place in the first race in Berlin. Like that that was it in terms of results. And ninth in Valencia and ninth in London. 
a fifth on the road in Rome after he started towards the front because it was the drying track qualifying. So I think I think second probably flatters Edo in the in the championship. And I think if he'd have won the championship, it would have been a harsh one. But it, obviously that would have depended on uh, not a harsh one, but a maybe a slightly maybe slightly fortuitous perhaps but it would have depended on that final race in berlin if he if he started from 10th on the grid and came through to finish third and then won the title then you go full credit so i think second in the standings isn't quite right and i think i'm actually putting i might be putting france above mortara if it's uh, if, it, if it was up to me so into uh into p4 now we've got antonio felix da costa one of one of the characters of the paddock should we say absolutely this is i i for ages thought you know i was going to rank antonio felix da costa number one um i tend to make my mind up on top 10 pretty early in the season sometimes before the season yeah so is even, this is this monaco began, you've really. decided to put him there no no but let let's look okay so you have to you know the there's two ways of doing a top 10. You can argue your drivers in or you can argue your drivers out. So let's try and argue De Costa out of out of the top five spot. So what what were the mistakes? So he was hurt by the he was hurt by the qualifying format. He was uh, persistently in in group one. And, you know, the car was clearly not as good as last year. I think um, the, man- the the details I managed to tease out of the team was it had too much weight over the rear, which is why it absolutely mullered its rear tyres in, in Berlin on that abrasive concrete. So that was that was a team one, two gone. He was punted out, you know, needlessly, completely needlessly by that name again, Andre Lotterer in London. He was thrown under the bus by the FIA. And again, this comes back to our Valencia argument. Were the teams in the right or in the wrong? I argue the teams were in the right. So you can't use De Costa um, running out of energy to, to against him. In this Mexico, is an embarrassing that name troll again, of, of half excuses. Carry on. No, no, it's not. But in, in Mexico, um, again, Lotterer rips off all this all this advertising hoarding. That gets enveloped in De Costa's brakes. They overcook and, and they trap it. They're his no, non-scores. Where, where, They're yeah, his DNF. It? None of them, none of them are his fault. But if you take that away, he's still super fast and, and, and consistent. But that was just disguised because he didn't have an amazing car like no, last because... year. But he didn't do anything wrong. And all of this is going on. Well, he doesn't know if he's in form next season. He doesn't know if he's, you know, he's getting like six months without without pay, you know, because of the team ownerships going, going on. He had everything against him, but was still absolutely brilliant. The The... The examples you're citing, oh, he's lost points in this DNA. They're such Mickey Mouse points. Like he, no, no, no. He I'm retired not from Puebla when he got the stuff in his in his car. Yeah, yeah. But what no, was he? I'm ninth? not arguing that he's lost points. I'm not arguing that he's lost points and and therefore is a rock. He got hit champion. by Lotterer that... fighting over what eleventh in London. Yes, I'm no, but I'm not arguing that he is the lost champion of, of 2021. You I'm arguing that he one. is the best driver, regardless of car. So I'm just taking away these anomalous things where, where you know, they could be used if you just look at, if you say, you know, you're just phoning in and looking at Wikipedia and you see a DNF next to his name. I'm arguing that you should look beyond the results, see how he did all season. And there weren't mistakes at all. And that, as an arbiter of how a driver did, has to put him, okay, I haven't put him as number one in the end, but it has to put him in the top five of of the performance of last season i think he was outstanding yet again so you think he made fewer mistakes than frights possibly no mistakes possibly no mistakes 
Yeah, so uh, was it Frines in Puebla where oh, he, you know, he gets his yeah, breaking yeah, yeah. wrong for yeah, yeah, in first corner and stuff like that. Da Costa, I don't think you know if what's what's the what's the get out of jail clause the steward use uh, a driver to be wholly or predominantly yeah. to blame. I don't think there's anything whether not even whether it's a crash, but whether it's a a rubbish qualifying lap. I don't think there's anything really last season that you would say De Costa was wholly or predominantly to blame. I think you go, no, the car was a step backwards and he was he was hit by one of the Porsches in every case. Big passion. Big passion for a for this yeah a steady season. Great stuff. Yeah. Uh... You can't tell I'm gunning for his uh I wanna be the ghostwriter for his autobiography. You can't tell <laughs> that that hasn't come through, has it? <laughs> All right, we'll move on to number Look, three. I which just quickly, I think DaCosta had a good season. DaCosta oh, okay. had a good season, but to put him that high up is 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 a is a bit mad. When you've got Van Dorn, bit mad, who equally made zero mistakes and was more impressive, and he's way down in seventh. I think that those two are, are a farce from Q. <laughs> DaCosta annihilated his double champion teammate yet again. Van Dorn didn't didn't come close to De Vries. Didn't come close to De Vries. Right. Jake Dennis. Let's, let's move on <laughs> before there is actually some sort of fight. Um, Jake Dennis, number three. Go on, Nichols. You, you open a batting here. He, he was excellent. And a yeah, I, I, there's not there's not much uh, there's not much to say here because I think that's about it's about right to be honest. For Dennis, he was. It took him a while to get used to the car. Said uh, he told me in where was it? I think it was Rome that. He's gotten so used to driving GT3 cars that he was that he was just smashing the brakes and the ABS sorts it out. Whereas um, obviously can't do that with FE and and the brakes in FE are actually probably the the trickiest thing to to sort of sort out. And so yeah, um, the with the win in Valencia at the time felt like a an anomaly because it was set on a because qualifying was a drying track and all of that and it was Dennis and Nato and Lynn fighting it out. He did a great job to um to uh to hold him off um and to win on what everyone thought was a race you didn't want to lead from, but he maybe didn't have the toughest opposition behind him. And then suddenly Monaco he's back to sixteenth and there you go. And then suddenly Puebla, a couple of fifths, win in London and then and then he's on fire and he should he should have won the championship. I think that's the thing. He he, uh, he should have won the championship, and whether it was a mechanical problem or he's locked the rears, I don't know. But I think that'll be a, a frustrating one for him because I yeah I think if I think yeah I think he should have won the championship. Just to clarify what I said just before before Jack sort of made the cases, I was saying you know he was brilliant and a rookie, but they are two separate things. I'm not factoring in his rookie status into. Into yeah, agreed. His 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 role in the top ten drivers. He was just the third best driver in my eyes throughout last season. It, it was exceptional, and you know, I I'm not sure how quite how the minimum weight works. But obviously, he's he's a massive tall guy. You know, he he has to be very underweight, or you know, for his his body mass to fit in the car, and that brings challenges with it. Yeah, he no one expected him to win this internal BMW shootout, shootout and he, he came in and embarrassed quite a few people, not least his his teammate. And I, I'm sure there's more story to that, uh, more more information behind behind the scenes to why Maximilian Gunther hasn't re-signed with Andretti, whether they wanted him to or or not, in the context of a possible F1 deal or or you know leaving leaving sort of a um, a full guy should they 
getting to bed with a manufacturer and having a manufacturer driver in. But I wonder if Max has looked looked at what Dennis has done, or or conversely, Andretti have looked at what what Dennis have done and got we don't need each other because of that. But potentially, Dennis was so good that he he you know kind of fobbed off his teammates' chances of getting re-signed. I don't know. I, I think that's the a very easy way and sort of co- maybe correct way of looking at it because Gunter he's he's won a lot of Formula E races but um so sort of erratic let's say so um fascinated to see what happens with him up against Buemi next year I think yeah I just think Dennis was yeah Dennis was Dennis was spot on I'm not sure the height and the weight thing is that um sort of crucial or or a or a big deal we, we bonded over being massive that's why i bought yeah it up. follow him on instagram and i i don't don't think you're quite as massive as he is honestly you should just do him in championship order if you're gonna think you have to have the champion at the top then you might as well just write the championship order because that's what we're basing on so i think it's perfectly acceptable not to have the champion at the top oh thank you thank you but i just do it let's i can just do this sort of as a as a dog fight between him and spoiler alert, my, my I put Mitch Evans as number one. I don't think Nick DeVries ever truly excelled in in qualifying. I think when when the group uh, system was in his favour, he delivered. I don't think he ever dragged the car beyond the group it should have been, if that makes sense. So let's say he's lining up in group one. I don't you know I don't think he ever does well enough. I'm not articulated that very well but I don't I don't think he ever outperforms a car or or the scenario I think he just delivers um the the qualifying error in Monaco it was him that knocked the car out of the right mode that has to be uh, held against him um didn't think he was very good in New York okay Mercedes going through a bit of a, a trough here but you know these these are little bits where where I don't think he was he was up to up to he was snuff. in he was in group yes. two in New York as well the only race of the season he was in group two yeah but then you have this where okay, uh, okay I'm not counting his Valencia win but he was amazing in in Saudi Arabia one of the strongest weekends and what I'm doing by picking those those sort of scenarios is saying that this was actually quite an inconsistent season but the peaks were so good that you know and and with that sort of final race in in Berlin that that's what got him over the line I don't think it was like champion-like consistency like we saw with De Costa last season or or as I covered with Colin Turkington in, in 2019 in British Touring Cars. I don't think it was a champion season in the sense of being, you know, uber, uber, like a really flat line that he, you know, what what do you want? Your flat line where you're barely ever off it. I think he actually has quite a lot of peaks and troughs and Evans had, had, a, had a smoother run to, to not getting the title. Yeah, I think it's so difficult, this stuff, because De Vries had some really good qualifying to to my mind i mean uh valencia the first race in valencia he was in group one and he ended up making it into to super pole and the closest to him was pascal verline in ninth yeah. you had um frights in 15th evans and bird had a horrible time didn't they in uh, 20th and 17th respectively so he really did a good job in that in that first valencia qualifying and then he was fortunate that he was in group two going into London. So he managed to get ninth on the grid for that first race in London. And then he was in group one the next day when it rained and he actually still beat everyone. He made it into Super Bowl again. France was eighth on the grid. Uh, Bird and De Costa 21st and 22nd, 17th for Dennis. So he really, I think there were a few outstanding qualifying performances from, from him, especially in the sort of trickier conditions on, on some occasions. But 
Yeah, it was only sort of some of the races where he scored big points. I, that's what I can't quite make up my mind about De Vries's season. Like, absolutely a deserving champion, but was he the most deserving of it? I, I'm not 100% sure. So I think I, I'm not against second place. I was going to say, that brings us nicely on to, to you. As you said, your number one is Mitch Evans. Now, he's been knocking on the door for some time, but again, in the title fight, but just didn't quite get there this year. Yeah, took the title fight down to the very last race. Um, was denied it because of a stupid drive shaft uh, error, I think, on the, on the line. But the, there's there's three criteria that he ticks for me. Um, out outperforms his teammate and a very established teammate at that. Um, is in the title fight with the second best car. So okay, that's enough as a platform to get the get the best car. But he's I don't think the Jaguar is as good as Mercedes, and he takes it down to the wire. And I think you look at mistakes. He only really had one last season. Yes, it was massively costly in, in New York City where he taps the wall at a cost of a Jaguar 1-2 and slides back. And that's the difference in the championship race. But then again, you have this thing where if he scores points and that changes his group qualifying position and how that affects the season go on. But I think there was only really one mistake. Um, the rest of the time, he was super quick. Uh, probably should have got a win in one of New York City or Monaco. Uh, but on the whole, a really, a really stellar season, pacey. And I won't go into details, but there was enough off-track distractions that if you had a rubbish year, you could say, oh, that'd be why. But you didn't let that come in. So fair yeah, play. Good job from Evans this year. I'm struggling to put him number one, honestly. I think I'm doing Van Dorn, Dennis and De Vries as my top three if, if, I, if, I were, if I were choosing it. Maybe not in that order, but those are my top three, Van Dorn, Dennis and De Vries. Evans had a good year. Never quite, well, never finished higher than third in what was a very good car, the Jaguar. A really good car. And maybe not quite up there with the Mercedes, I, I accept that. But for me, the, I, I don't know what you were watching with, with the DS to Cheetah. For me, the Mercedes, the Jaguars and the DS to Cheetahs, they were the, they were the top three cars on the grid, I felt. But anyway. Um, Agreed. But the DS to Cheetah has gone from being, let's say, the top by... 10%, 15%, it's now third and another 5%, 10% back from the Jaguar. I don't, yeah, I don't fine, but if it's, a, very, it's the third best car. car and you're giving Antonio Felix yeah. de Costa, who finished eighth in the championship, driver of the season, like that's where your inconsistencies are, are, are absolutely well, horrific. I haven't, I haven't given him driver of the season, but I've argued at all the cases where, you know, he, he might have got the title. I've argued why none of them were, were his fault. Yeah, fine. But give me that book Evans, deal. Uh, Evans. Yeah, he's another who should have won the championship and, and looked absolutely favourite to. And I actually wrote a blog on the Formula E website because writing's pretty straightforward. And it was about that moment in uh, in New York because that was like a... To me, that was the moment that made his championship fight. And I wrote it at the time. It was like, okay, because now he's dropped out of the running. He's not in Group 1 anymore. And this is his chance to sort of do a run-up, as it were, to the to the end of the season. So... That ever that one mistake in New York was kind of the best move he made all season because then he was out of the out of the Group One mess and then had those third third in the second race in London third in Berlin and then he's all set ready to go to to win the title so I feel desperately sorry for him because that really wasn't his fault in Berlin Dennis I think we're still we're still unsure as to whether it was a driver error or a mechanical error whether we'll ever find out I don't know. So, but it could well have been um, driver. So, I think Evans would have been a, a very deserving champion and had a good year. The the ironic thing is that that overtake 
of the year we discussed earlier, Evans going ahead at Beau Rivage. That's cost him his cost win, him cost him the the win, and yeah. and maybe the championship. So uh, it's it's weird how these things work. The other the other bit of Mitch Evans based irony is what you've just said that his mistakes meant he had an advantage for for qualifying. So I think you know we're all happy to see the back of that group yeah. system for next season. That was our, our top ten. But is there any drivers that you'd like to highlight as that really should have done better that that didn't that didn't quite reach the bar that they should have? Lotterer, Buemi, Gunther are a, are a three, three to me, uh, three to me. Lotterer and um, not uh, I, I. I had Vern in top my top ten last year. He wasn't in this year. I don't think it was necessarily a bad campaign. It was just sort of middling. Lotterer, so many mistakes. Um, I don't think this will win me any favours. But Porsche tried to get Mitch Evans. They couldn't. They've re-signed Lotterer. I think I support Aston Villa. We've just sacked our manager. I'd be furious at our CEO if we didn't have a shortlist. In you know when we've lost four games in a row and you go, we're going to sack our manager after five. I'd be furious if they didn't have a shortlist of who they wanted to go after in a in a reasoned and targeted way. By re-signing Lotterer, I think to me that after a really terrible campaign, I think that looks a bit like they were, they were caught out and went for a simple option. Buemi passionately argues, you know, to the point where he's spitting in your face in London behind a pit garages, and then fair play to him, apologises a couple of days later. But it, it, like he critically argues there was a fundamental issue with his car that, you know, he couldn't change the necessary component on his tub. And that came incidentally after a crash with Lotterer. But yeah, just really wasn't at the races <laughs> i agree with those and everything matt said is, is pretty spot on there thank you Jack. So the final the final part of our podcast we're just gonna have a quick look ahead to next year so talk us through a who you think is going to shine and just highlight perhaps some of the the changes and and topics we're gonna encounter for this uh for this next season i think in terms of who's going to shine you have to say mercedes again one because they have the best car emphatically they're not going to go off the boil chasing this mid-season qualifying boost that then relegated them to sort of you know the mid-pack at best in in monaco mexico and new york city we've obviously got the fixed homologation for the powertrain so there's no reason for that that performance to go anywhere and um you know it does it affect their performance Potentially not, but it's their last season in the works, guys, and they'll they'll want two titles out of it. Um, they're the form team, you know. The the errors in their first factory season, they blighted De Vries. Last season, they blighted Van Dorn. You know, really, they shouldn't be any this season, and they should both finish one two in the championship with a more meritocratic qualifying qualifying format. So they're going to be really quick. Um, We've got a new qualifying format. Looking forward to seeing that. I would like to see a behind-closed-doors test of that at Valencia just to get a better understanding of how it might look rather than going through YouTube footage of Super League Formula. That would be good. Um, but I think the thing that's overwhelming for me is in an ideal world, if, if Formula E had three wishes, I think one of them would be to almost park this season and bring in the Gen 3 car. I think the Championship needs that. Um, in I think, yeah, ch- Championship needs that a lot in terms of the sort of We've had manufacturers going, not coming in. Um, we've had a, 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 an electric touring car championship launch with twice the power. I think Formula E has kind of muddled itself. Of It's dropped the sustainability thing quite substantially. Yes, there's been some noise during the COP26, but I think it's dropped the sustainability thing and it's trying to be an automotive test bed. I think Valencia proved where 
the again as Zach Brown would say the optics of that don't look right but we've also got a thing where the electric car powertrain is what 98% efficient all the technologies in the batteries batteries completely closed shop in Formula E so I think it's got a bit of a muddled identity does that change with Gen 3? No, but I think in getting to faster cars that look better, obviously we haven't had a facelift because of COVID of the body kits. I think this season is galvanise, no mistakes, whatever, and then and then get Gen 3 in, but it'll be good. Uh, yeah, I think overall that's... I wasn't I wasn't actually a huge fan of the, the, the Gen 2.5 whatever body kit. I thought it made it look a little bit more like a traditional race car, and I love the Gen 2 cars because they, they do look a bit a bit different to be honest i think this will be this is a year to get back on track when you're going back to street circuits back to mexico city back to uh you know the vancouver street circuit will be amazing brooklyn london excel a new street circuit in seoul like the calendar is really cool i don't i don't think gen uh, and it's just we just got to focus on the racing and having a good season because I, you can get so lost in the optics of what you know battery technology like it, that all depends who you're trying to attract, right? And are fans tuning in to to learn about battery technology and to to watch battery manufacturers battle it out at at an exponential cost that sends you know budgets through the roof? I don't think so, to be honest. It's about you know as a manufacturer showing that you're doing electric cars and you're part of the electric car you know revolution rather than necessarily having to show off your own personal battery technology. So I think it's at a, I think it's at a reasonable balance at the moment and I'm looking forward to this season because hopefully it'll kind of put FE back on track a little. I, I slightly disagree with that in the fact that BMW and Mercedes who have announced they're quitting or have quit, they both cited the technology specifics of Formula E and their reasons for going that, that they couldn't develop anymore. Um, I also think that, you know, I, I agree, Formula E could quite happily exist with 11, 12 private teams but in order to get there, you've got to have Nissan, DS, whoever pulling out. That again looks bad. It's easy to jump on jump on the bandwagon. Um, and although I don't quite understand the full picture, even the teams model, you've got the team to cheetah that has won the championship twice, dri- three drivers' titles, and that doesn't have two pennies to rub together. Is that because of a bigger problem f- that comes from its owner not being very, you know? let's say, fair with his checkbook? Or is it because the commercial model from Formula E doesn't, doesn't serve its purpose? I don't know. I'm not here to call it out. I'm not here. Actually, I say I'm here to call it out, but luckily I'm not here to find it. But my point is, if, the, if, you know, if you think that the commercial model isn't working and that it needs more eyes, then you don't need to start a battery war. You just need to have a season of good racing with the right contenders at the front, which is what the, the championship is, um, or what the qualifying system is is sort of trying to do. So, yeah, I, Formula E was never going to get more manufacturers than what it had, right? So some are going to leave. BMW have been around since the start. Audi have been around since the start. Mercedes is still a bit of an anomaly in their sort of leaving because they were really, really committed and then all of a sudden not committed, but still sort of trying to be a bit committed. So that's a whole weird one. So, um, yeah, I'm not trying to be the Formula E spokesperson and put a positive spin on it, but... I, I agree that it needs, um, you know, a, b- a bit of identity, I suppose, in 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 that form. Yeah, I completely agree that once you're chock-a-block of manufacturers, some will go. But I think there's a bit of a trend that for everyone that has gone, the line that gets trotted out is manufacturers come and go. And that's, you know, that has a risk of not analysing 
the merits of each case, why that manufacturer, why that boardroom has gone. And okay, in BMW's case, it's because six months before they made a decision, they had a change at the boardroom and went quiet. And so you can predict that one's coming. But you look at Mercedes, you know, have they taken umbrage with the technical roadmap? Yes. The commercials? Yes. Uh, the 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 marketing prospects or the TV appeal? Yes. They, you know, I think when, when, there's, when there's those critical issues, yes, you can say manufacturers come and go, but if you ignore them, then maybe it gets to that that really critical point a bit a bit later on. But, you know, that's by the by. I'm still looking forward to the next season of Formula E, slightly more powerful cars. Um, interesting that we've not had a huge amount of driver movement, whether that's, you know, factors related to the pandemic not having a rookie test things like that not quite sure but it's it is it like i said earlier it needs to be a solid season and stable season you've got a solid and stable season up ahead i think that's a very nice way to end uh, the podcast i think we're it's safe to say we're all excited about the next season coming up with as we've seen the racing from the previous season it's always exciting to watch and certainly what you've just outlined has just made that uh, potentially even better with the new qualifying system and more powerful cars so just wanted to say thanks to to matt and to jack for joining us today for the former podcast and just make sure you uh, have a look at the supplement that comes out with this week's autosport it's very interesting and it certainly outlines all the exciting topics in formula e Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. If you served in the Vietnam, Gulf War, or post-9-11 eras, you may be eligible for expanded VA benefits. A new law known as the PACT Act provides disability compensation, health care, free toxic exposure screenings, and more to veterans who are exposed to toxins during their military service. You can submit a claim for your PACT Act-related benefits now. Claims received by August 10, 2023 may be paid back to August 10, 2022. Visit va.gov/pact to learn more and file your claim. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.